Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. You knew it must come to this, sooner or later, Toad, the Badger explained severely. You've disregarded all the warnings we've given you. You've gone on squandering the money your father left you. And you're giving us animals a bad name in the district by your furious driving and your smashes and your rows with the police. Independence is all very well. But we animals never allow our friends to make fools of themselves beyond a certain limit. And that limit you've reached. Now, you're a good fellow in many respects, and I don't want to be too hard on you. I'll make one more effort to bring you to reason. You will come with me into the smoking room, and there you will hear some facts about yourself, and we'll see whether you come out of that room the same Toad that you went in. He took Toad firmly by the arm, led him into the smoking room, and closed the door behind them. That's no good said the Rat contemptuously. Talking to Toad will never cure him. He'll say anything. So, Dominic, <laughs> that was that was your choice of reading, and I have to say uh, it's, a, it's a superlatively good one, um, from <laughs> Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows um, and Toad of Toad Hall, <laughs> a character with whom Boris Johnson has often been compared. He, um, he's, he's always getting into smashes, isn't he? He, he lies, he drives cars fast he escapes from prison dressed as washing woman um it's exactly. non-stop scrapes um yeah. and um and boris has been in a, a well i mean he, he's the grease piglet he's been called but he's finally been caught and turned into bacon he has indeed so um tom you read that with great relish and i have to say you make a very good badger thank you um thank you i, I wouldn't have had you down as a natural i think you're more of a rat than a badger um but i think you did a very good badger there thank you um Yes, I think this is an extraordinary day. We are recording at 11 o'clock on Thursday, the 7th of July, after what has probably been, what have probably been the most extraordinary two days in British prime, in modern British prime ministerial history, possibly British prime ministerial history. Full stop. Since Walpole. Um, For instance, I mean, the obvious parallel is with the, the defenestration of Mrs. Thatcher. Do you think it's a, a, a more? It's been a more remarkable twenty-four hours than that. Um, the tone is so utterly different, Tom. It is, so isn't it? For yeah. regu- regular listeners will know that we did a podcast about how prime ministers fall, and we talked about the defenestration of Mrs. Thatcher, which, for though people of our age, kind of centrist dadish people, is this kind of. Um, it was felt like an absolute watershed, didn't it? But the tone of Mrs. Thatcher's fall, and we'll come back to Mrs. Thatcher's fall in the autumn because we're planning um, an episode about that. That that was a it, it was high drama. It was high melodrama, um, but everybody in it was possessed of a sort of dignity, yeah. weren't they? I mean, yeah. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher, even yeah. when she wept, as the it was, the it was a Shakespearean tragedy. Whereas this yeah. is kind of opera bouffe. It, it's pantomime it's carry on um carry on downing street for, for me the well it's that sort of coupled with this sort of game of thrones role playing isn't it so that moment last night late last night when 
there were two rival delegations <laughs> in Downing Street of ministers. There were the sort of um, the, the people led by the, the Chancellor of a day, uh, Nadim Zahawi, telling Boris Johnson he had to go. Then there were the loyalists, the Nadine Torres and co, telling him he had to stay. He refused to leave and then and then sort of wildly flailing and lashing out, sacked Michael Gove and called him a snake. Um, <laughs> yeah. Briefed the press that Gove was a snake. I thought at that point, I mean, at that point, that was the point at which it tipped into just outright ridiculousness. Well, yes. So, so I mean, obviously a kind of slight, a, a comical element. So Michael Gove is, I think, even his enemies would acknowledge is probably the most effective minister in the current government. Um, celebrated as the minister who actually gets things done. Mm-hmm. And he is in charge of uh, the government's levelling up department, which, yeah. a- according t- to the prime minister himself, is at the heart of his entire mission. And yeah. and I think that by the end of, of yesterday evening, they had one minister left in that department. So to, to sack Gove on one level, obviously deeply satisfying for Johnson, because, of course, there's history there. And we should explain for, for non-British listeners that... Johnson and Gove were were kind of allies in the Brexit campaign. Gove was backing Johnson throughout that campaign, then was going to back him as a candidate to be prime minister. Um, And it all went disastrously wrong because Gove basically realised that Johnson would make a terrible prime minister and said so. And everything he said, you know, I mean, was basically accurate. Uh, and stabbed him in the backs, and and then Johnson has has been obliged to bring Gove back in because basically Gove is the, the the best minister there is. Um, so on that level, on one level, deeply satisfying for Johnson to to to, to get rid of Gove like that. But on the other, massively, massively irresponsible because now he Johnson is going to step down. That department that has no minister. So that moment, Tom. When uh, Johnson sacked Michael Gove, I, I thought, although that was that was couched in this sort of "I fight on, I fight to to win" terminology derived from Mrs. Thatcher in nineteen ninety, I thought that was the moment where it was very clear he wasn't yeah. realistically going to continue as prime minister because having sacked Michael Gove, having lost all these other people, it was inconceivable that he could continue. Yeah. Um, uh, but obviously, he went um, this morning. And, uh, you know, as we said, there are prime ministers have gone in in different circumstances before they've been toppled by, you know, the the public in general elections. They've been toppled by internal party revolts. But I can't think of a process that's ever been simultaneously uh, sort of so protracted, but in such a ludicrous and lurid manner. I mean, Theresa May's departure was very protracted, but it was sort of there was something excruciating about it. And and she's a, somebody of an immense seriousness. Yeah. So there was something quite sort of, even for people who despise Theresa May, there was something quite tragic about it. Nobody could say that, I think, about Boris Johnson. But they, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just something absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, the the um, there was no dignity whatsoever. I, I, and I think it will it will be looked back at as as a kind of moment of of high grotesque comedy. But to to reiterate, you know, Britain is a country facing multiple crises. Um, and essentially to have lost pretty much the whole government, you know, and, and willingly to have allowed that to happen simply in the cause of defending his own prime ministership. It's actually the most monstrous display of irresponsibility that I can think of from a leading British politician. 
Agreed. I agree. It, monstrously irresponsible. Because you think about, you know, the, the, because what's ha- what, what has happened, however much entertainment it may have provided uh, p- politics aficionados over the past day or so, there are people who are facing, I, I mean, essentially a kind of a collapse into poverty. Inflation going through the roof. Massive, mm-hmm. massive spikes in, in uh, energy prices coming up. Huge, huge problems. And what has happened over the past few years has made the ability of the government to respond to that much, much lower than it would otherwise have been. Yeah. Well, that's why the question is now, does he stay on to the autumn as he wants? Or do they actually move much more quickly? Do they defenestrate him? Do they get an interim prime minister who can work with a, a team of sort of seasoned people to try and deal with some of this cost of living stuff before a new leader comes in? Um, I guess late summer or autumn, maybe the party conference. But can Boris Johnson conceivably preside over some sort of temporary cabinet full of people who've stabbed him, not just in the back, but in the front? Well, well, you know, or is there some kind of, will there be some? Because the whole thing about the British Constitution is that it's unwritten. And I'm sure we'll come to that because that essentially lies at the heart of everything that's been happening recently. But maybe a, a new protocol will be written into the British Constitution that um, in a situation like this, you, you revert to the norm um, that existed 24 hours before. And maybe all the ministers will come back in and resume maybe, their position. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, to reiterate, we're recording this 11 o'clock on um, on Thursday morning. So by the time you listen to this, perhaps this will all have been resolved. So, Tom, let's um, since we are obviously a history podcast and our political punditry, though ob- in our own rate. minds absolutely first class it's probably not even fifth class in the in the um yeah. in the eyes of some of our listeners so let's talk about some of the the, the history here so boris johnson see, has always seen himself hasn't he as a as a historical character isn't that right and particularly a character from classical history yes yeah, so so he studied classics at university and for most people who who study the ancient world it is a a, a distant period um, it it does not do what the study of the classical languages and ancient history did for generations and generations of European leaders, which was to provide a, a kind of how to do politics course. I mean, that's what it was for, for Machiavelli. That's what it was for people in the you know, the Cromwellian period, um, yeah. for, for millords throughout the 18th century, for French revolutionaries. Classics provided guides on how to behave on how to behave politically, on how to behave morally. That has not been the case for many, many years. And the salience of classics in the education of people in Britain obviously has, has declined massively. So Johnson, in that sense, is a throwback. He, he is someone who, for whom classics is, is pretty much central to his education. But I think also the, the, the thing that is intriguing about him is that I think he, he studied it as an example of how to get ahead. I think he had a, a properly greek roman understanding of how fortuna tyche chance has her this great goddess has her favorites and i think he's yeah. he genuinely you know in a kind of inchoate sense but a, a sense that does seem to me to have been authentic saw himself as fortune's favorite and for so long he was but of course it it's the nature it's the essence of tragedy it's the essence of um the cruelty and the humour of Fortuna that she raises her for- her favourites up only yep. to hurl them down. And the the joke 
that fortune has played on on Johnson is is a peculiarly cruel one, I think. Well, let's talk a bit about classical parallels because some people, so our producer Joey, um, asked at the beginning whether it was like the Ides of March, whether that was a, a reasonable parallel. Is that how Boris Johnson himself? You, I mean, clearly he would love that parallel, wouldn't he? He'd like to see himself as Caesar brought down by sort of weedy politicians and senators at, who who envy the great man. Do you think that's how he sees it, Tom? I, I think, well, to a to a degree. Uh, so Caesar did cast himself as the kind of the tribune of the people, um, and he did become impatient with the um, the conventions of of the republican frame of government, and did want to establish a kind of personal relationship between him and the mass of the people who he felt w- were backing him. Yeah. And in fact, were backing well, him. As and, we've said many times, Caesar was a great populist. Absolutely. And and that has been um, a feature of Johnson. I mean, he hasn't cast himself as a kind of a dictator as Caesar did, but he's cast himself as a presidential figure. So even even as he was, you know, his government was resigning all around him, he was saying that his mandate derived from the votes of, of the people who had actually voted for the Conservative yeah. Party. I mean, it's a parliamentary system, not a presidential system. Exactly. So the mandate was for, for the, individual was for MPs, the, not yeah, for him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But he was saying, I can't be, you, you can't bring me down because I have the backing of the people. So to that extent, uh, the, the, the echoes are there, I guess, of Caesar. But the, per, the hero, um, Johnson's hero has always been Pericles. And I saw actually that he, he, he was being interviewed by Chris Mason on a couple of days ago about the whole imbroglio just as um javid and and sunak the uh, the health and chancellor of the, the health secretary and chancellor of the exchequer were about to resign and in behind him he had a bust of pericles who was the the great democratic leader of Athens. yeah so tell us a bit about pericles and we'll do a whole podcast about pericles but tell us give us a, a small sense of him so pericles was um he was a, of aristocratic pedigree a very good of a kind of slightly notorious but but very very influential family uh, and he so rigged the democratic system he he made himself so so much the favorite of the pe- of the people that in effect he ruled as a kind of first minister in the democracy right and that that's always been uh, johnson's role model but i think that, that that he's flattering himself with that i i i don't think that um johnson has any real point of comparison with pericles at all because Pericles was more serious or more more substantial. He was more substantial. Yeah, he was more yeah. substantial. Um, if if we'd been recording this while Johnson was still clinging on in Downing Street, mm-hmm. I, I would have said that the, the parallels actually were with those who made themselves tyrants in Greek city states. I mean, the, okay. the refusal to accept the the kind of civic norms is what was characterized. Is what characterized this crisis. And that was always the kind of the pressure point in both the cities of Greece and in Rome under its Republican system was where its its great men, its leaders refused to accept what the Romans called the Mos Maiorum, the, the customs of the ancestors, the unwritten rules, the unwritten conventions of behavior and morality that should, it was felt, properly govern how people behaved. And it's though it's it's ironically it's the kind of the mos maiorum the the, the the customs of the ancestors that Johnson has repeatedly kind of trodden down, uh, yeah. and 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 actually one of the things that Romans in particular provide that the model that Romans provided was knowing how to make a good exit. So actually, there's a kind of parallel with Otho, who was one of the emperors in the year of the four emperors, AD sixty nine. 
who who'd been a notorious Rui. He'd been a friend of Nero's. He'd um, he kind of gone out in, a bit kind of like Darius Guppy and 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 Boris that they they right. as young men they kind of go out into the seamier reaches of Rome and they would attack people. And they're particular. Oh my God, that is like Darius well, they're, Guppy. So they're particular. They, what Nero and Otho would do, they 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 kind of take distinguished looking passers-by and and toss them in cloaks. Which is a very kind of public school thing to do, isn't it? Flashman did yeah. that, um, and 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 Otho was the husband of Papaya Sabina, who very much friend of the show. We've talked about her quite a lot. Very much. Or you claim that Nero was absolutely yeah. you know, so, so attached to her that he beat her to death. Yes, but he he he. First of all, he had to get rid of Otho, uh, which he did by sending her off to, him off to govern Portugal. Right. Um. And uh, but then when Nero died, city erupted into civil war. Um, Otho backed Galba, who was the kind of the big military man in Spain, um, came to Rome, thought that he was going to be groomed as um, Galba's successor, uh, wasn't. So basically sponsored a coup against Galba, rather like Boris sponsored a coup against Theresa May. Galba yeah. was a rather Theresa May figure, kind of very serious, <laughs> solemn, ponderous figure. Um, so Otho became emperor. The legions on the Rhine didn't like this. They supported the, the a very fat guy called Vitellius. He stopped on his march to eight pasties from that kind of thing. Yes, stalls. Didn't <laughs> that he? Kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> um, and Vitellius's army, not actually led by Vitellius, because he was <laughs> still busy gore eating, um, met with Otho's army in northern Italy, and Otho's army was defeated. And the news was brought to Otho, and he could have carried on fighting. That he had yeah. enough troops to carry on fighting. And the Praetorians who'd backed him wanted him to carry on fighting. So Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg, that kind of, <laughs> those kind of people, they were saying to Otho, yeah, go on, carry on fighting. And Otho said, no, I'm not going to do that because this would be bad for Rome. It would be bad for my city. It would be bad for the Roman people. Um, did he really lives, say that, Tom? This is what he, the, I think he did. And, and I think we can rely on the gist of it because Suetonius's father was at his side when he gave this speech. Uh, and okay. obviously reported it, Suetonius, who, who is the, the biographer from whom we, we get this. And Otho said, I, I am unwilling to prioritise my personal interests, my, my, my selfish interests over those of my fellow citizens. And so he killed himself, fell on his sword. And I think that that's the kind of model of civic <laughs> rectitude that, the that, British that, follow. that Boris Johnson could have <laughs> could have picked up on, but I'm afraid yeah. signally perhaps he didn't study that that section that that period. Of... No. Well, is there no Roman example? I mean, is there a good Roman example of somebody clinging on when they you know clinging on doing doing the anti Otho? So Nero, I mean, he tried to run away, didn't he? And, he kills himself. And was... He falls on his sword. I mean, it's there's a feeling that you know you. It's an undignified thing to do. Yeah. And there are various people later on in the history of, of Rome, aren't there, who are sort of, they are, they're killed by Praetorians and their head is used as a football or they're thrown into the Tiber or yeah. all these kinds of things. But that's more sudden, isn't it? Yeah. They, there's kind there's of not an example. Yeah, there's not really an example of somebody who, you know, who has the opportunity to make a dignified exit, but just risibly refuses to do so, I suppose. I mean, even James II has the decency yeah. to flee I, England and... I th 1688. I, so this is why I think I, th I think that that it is Fortuna's great joke that that she has raised him to the pinnacle. Yeah. Only to make him a figure of mockery, because he he has he, he has he has spurned the chance to behave with dignity. 
Well, this which, of course, Theresa so Max, May did and Mrs. Yeah. Thatcher did. Well, in the summer of 2019, Max Hastings, who had edited Johnson at The Telegraph and, and has subsequently um, established a kind of cottage industry of writing. Harumphing about fur- him. Incre- increasingly furious opinion pieces saying that he is absolutely, you know, he, sh- he should be thrown into the sea. Despite forthwith. having employed him, right? Despite having employed him. Um, well, he says, uh, he predicted in the summer, he said, Johnson's premiership will almost certainly reveal a contempt for rules, precedent, order, and stability. He will surely come to regret securing the prize for which he has struggled so long because the experience of the premiership will lay bare his absolute unfitness for it. So that's a bit, isn't that that's very similar to the line about Galba? Yes. Everybody Everyone, would have thought yeah. he would have been a great emperor if, if he only, but that is the, for, the fortune of, I mean, that is the tragedy, isn't yeah. it? As it were, that's the essence of tragedy. Yeah. But, um, in securing the prize you seek, you expose your own inadequacy. Yeah. So one last thing about the dignity point, Tom, is that um, I think we forget, partly because we've been inured to it because of the example of Mr. Trump, Um how unusual it is to have an undignified exit in British politics. So if you look back, I mean, Theresa May, I think everybody recognised that she was sort of trying her best, but when the game was up, she gave that sort of awful, excruciating, tearful Mm -hmm. statement outside number 10. Cameron left within hours of the Brexit referendum. He was humming, wasn't he? Well, he hummed. That's after the misunderstanding. Two things have now been conflated. So he actually hummed a, a few weeks later when it was obvious that May would succeed him without really a contest. And he said, okay, I'll have to go more quickly than I thought. And then he hummed. Okay, but right. he, didn't, he didn't hum on. The, everyone thinks he hummed on the morning, but he didn't. But he left immediately at a point actually when no one was calling for him to leave. Well, actually, I, I mean, the, um, this, this was something that was uh, very much picked up on uh, yesterday morning. Gordon Brown, yeah. after the indecisive election in, what was it, 2010, uh, hung around in Downing Street. Trying to form a coalition. Trying to form yeah. a coalition. Uh, and there was a slight sense that this was not a kind of dignified way for him to behave. Um, and one leading columnist who pointed this out, uh, and that, that, you know, there's always, as people have been saying, <laughs> there's, always, there's always a quote. Um, <laughs> but one leading columnist who pointed this out was... Um, was Uh, Boris Johnson, who wrote in The Telegraph about Gordon Brown's refusal to leave. The whole thing is unbelievable. As I write these words, Gordon Brown is still holed up in Downing Street. He is like some illegal settler in the Sinai Desert, lashing himself to the radiator, or like David Brent haunting the office in that excruciating episode where he refuses to acknowledge that he's been sacked. Isn't there someone, (laughs) the Queen's private secretary, the nice policeman, whose job it is to tell him that the game is over? So... Uh, I think we should take a break at this point. And Dominic, when we come back, perhaps you could put this uh, in the context of British politics. Okay, jolly good. Hello, welcome back to our Boris special. Um, We are recording this on um, Thursday morning, a few hours after the resignation of Boris Johnson as, uh, well, leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, not not as prime minister uh he's trying to cling on yeah. by the time you listen to this he may have gone as prime minister as well um so dominic um you wrote a fabulous essay for unheard unherd uh, a <laughs> yeah. couple of days ago on boris johnson as uh, as a political leader and you you essentially you you the, the figure you compared him to was ronald reagan 
Mm. Do you want to just so, just kind of tease that out for people? Well, I, I think what's easy to forget now, because Boris Johnson is obviously widely, he still has fans, by the way, and some of the people listening to this podcast may well be great admirers of Boris Johnson, but I think it's fair to, a fair guess that a larger proportion are not, and indeed that some of our listeners actively loathe and despise him. I would say that wasn't that that was if we'd done this podcast in 2015 or 2014 that probably wouldn't have been the case. Um Boris Johnson back then was seen as a, obviously a comic figure, a sort of joker. Um but he was also clear I would say pretty clearly on the more liberal wing of the Conservative Party, sort of one nation Tory, a very live and let live. And and he was renowned for his sort of jolly upbeat sort of you know gag a minute kind of personality and he was of course mayor of london and i often i used to think whether the analogy actually might be with ronald reagan in the u.s because of course reagan was governor of california so like london a kind of quite a you know as a liberal state uh he proved quite a pragmatic governor some people obviously thought he was terrible just like some people thought boris was a terrible mayor but reagan associated himself with a very sort of seasoned, experienced, cunning team who made it work while he went and gave the speeches. And he'd been, a, he'd been an actor before that. He'd been an actor, of course, and he was brilliant at, at speech-making, at meeting the people, at communicating, just as Boris Johnson owes star. his political yeah. career to television, to joking on television, on TV panel shows and so on. And so in some ways, I think, the, I mean, this thing about Fortuna being Fortuna's plaything, the, the role for which fate seemed to have cast Boris Johnson, if he was ever to be a frontline politician, was of uh, an optimistic, sunny people pleaser. You know, somebody who was never happier than when delivering good news, giving upbeat, patriotic speeches. And and in some ways the question is why didn't he why didn't he do that as Prime Minister? Why didn't he model himself on Reagan in the White House? So when Reagan came in in January nineteen eighty one, lots of people you know, hadn't voted for him and said, oh, he's just an actor, he's an airhead, he doesn't know anything. But actually Reagan surrounded himself with James Baker and George Schultz and Al Haig and Caspar Weinberger and all these people who actually knew how Washington worked, who were not showmen and kind of knew how to work the machine. Well, Reagan was the front man. So the question is, why didn't Boris Johnson do that? Why didn't he? And, and I guess there are two reasons. One which you mentioned to me before we started recording, which was events. So COVID made it impossible, didn't it, for him to, as you said, he he wanted to be Charles II, but he became Oliver Cromwell, yeah, banning fun. And as somebody who was a sort of lifelong funster, that was obviously counter to his instincts. But I also think that the sort of the to go back to the sort of um the Greek tragedy element, which obviously people who despise Boris Johnson will think is completely overblown. Um there, isn't there an argument, Tom, that um in the very act of securing power. And, we, uh, the, and, and the real key to that was toppling David Cameron. Uh, in, the re, in the act of securing power, he destroyed the very – he made it impossible for himself to play the part for which he'd been preparing. Because he destroyed Cameron and, and won, ultimately, in the long run, the premiership by making himself the, the, the figurehead for the Brexit campaign. Exactly, exactly. Because he made himself the figurehead for the Brexit campaign – a political movement that actually he in some ways he wasn't really that much in sympathy with so much more protectionist um harder edged 
obviously more people on the sort of the right of the Tory party, which is where he didn't really belong in policy terms, I would say. But you see, I think that's another way in which he's a, Roman, a slightly Roman figure, is that the Romans weren't ideological in that sense. They didn't have kind of programmes. Right. They, they, you know, politics was like kind of, you know, it was, it was eddies and a river that you try and catch to perceive the wind in the willows. Um, which analogy, is obviously what he was. Which is yes. what he did. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, people say that, you know, he has no real principles and no real convictions. But I think that, you know, that's, you could say the same of Roman politicians. Yeah, and that was his political identity there, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think what, by doing that, he made it impossible for him ever to play this sort of optimistic, jolly people pleaser because half the audience, or at least 48% of the audience, would always loathe him. But dominate. And would never forgive him. That's, I'm sure, a, a, absolutely. But that, the 52%, I mean, that proved enough for him to win a, a, yeah. a massive majority. And you could say that, um, you know, he... He he was able to appeal well to, to Wakefield and to Honiton and Tiverton to the two um, seat in the north, the red wall, the seat in the south, the kind of the, the blue wall. So traditionally, Labour seats that had moved to the Conservatives, yeah, um, and traditional Conservative seats in the south. That he did appeal to both, and that's what won him his majority. He did, he but did. clearly he's lost in a sense. He's lost well, not in a sense. I mean, he has lost a lot of backing in both those regions. Um, yeah, and and that's what that is where I think COVID comes in because I I think he was as a political figure peculiarly unsuited to dealing with COVID. I mean, I do think he he I think it would be insane to deny that he was an incredibly talented politician. I mean, he was well, talented campaigner. Yeah, but, but but winning campaigns and elections is a key part of being a politician, isn't it? Right, fair and enough. getting to the fair top, enough. and and he was very very good at that, very very effective at that. He you know he he won re-election as mayor of London. Yes, he did. A, in a, a, liberal, a, a cosmopolitan, a liberal, liberal yeah. multi-ethnic city. So clearly he 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 was a man of, of considerable political ability. But I think that, that COVID was just something he was spectacularly unsuited to dealing with. It required a, an ability to convey a sense of compassion. It, it, it required an attention to detail it required a, a, a willingness to kind of knuckle down and basically to live a kind of solitary existence because, you know, you hold yeah. up in Downing Street, which I'm sure it explains all the kind of the mad cake parties and things. You can't be having these terrible, these awful looking parties. <laughs> I mean, actually, to dignify them with the word parties is... is, is <laughs> yeah. If I went to a party, if, so, if someone invited me to a party and it was Rishi Sunak standing there all yeah. with a paper with cup the and big Prosecco, dog. Yeah, I'd be, be absolutely. But, gutted. but but I think more than that, I th I think that um that that COVID has. I think I think Britain, I think the entire global economy is suffering from long COVID. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I think struggle. You know, that to deal with that requires talents and qualities that Johnson massively does not possess. Well, Tom, I think there's a couple of points to make there. So one of them is. Events, dear boy, events, as Harold Macmillan famously said uh, in the 1950s, are the challenge for any political leader. So I, I've, you sort of hear this with people, with, with politicians. They'll often say in their defense, well, I've been very unfortunate because, you know, events have ganged up on me. And these, But, I mean, that's the nature of the job. When you, when you move yeah, into it is. the – It is. When you go behind that desk, you know – Things are going to happen. There will be wars. There will be crises. There will be yeah. economic shocks. That is the absolute. And if you're very lucky, if you're very, very lucky, actually, Tony Blair is a very good example, I think, of somebody who was generally 
very lucky. He had an economic a run of kind of calm waters, no storm. The storms, the Antonine peace. Yeah, exactly. There were storms. I mean, nine eleven. I mean, his own decision <laughs> yeah. to invade Iraq. But economically, he had fantastically plain sailing. Or any prime minister in the early 2020s would have had difficulties, but that is the nature of the job. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt in America in the 30s, Thatcher in the 80s. Events happen. I I agree. But, you know, if you could compare, say, Asquith or Chamberlain or Churchill, who who obviously faced the the worst crises of all, um, I actually think that that Johnson is is quite well suited to dealing with, you know, with wars. I think he's had quite a good invasion of ukraine yeah but that's because he doesn't have to organize anything exactly but 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 he can do he can make the right gest and and also to give him credit you know he has been he was kind of ahead of the curve with that uh he was alert to it uh so that is something i think that he 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 got right i just think that a massive public health crisis i suspect he has no interest in hospitals or doctors or you know vaccines or it's just i think completely leaves him cold i think he's just not interested I think there's another element to this, which is that a uh, a really successful high end politician. I mean, polit- that thing about Reagan: politicians are actors; they are public performers. I mean, that must true must have been true in the Roman world. I mean, it obviously was true yeah, in the Roman world. Wasn't it? One of the most famous bits of Roman political theatre, Mark Antony giving Caesar's funeral oration, is pure performance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a good politician is capable of playing more than one part. So Boris was clearly very good at playing a particular part, which is the kind of roguish mountebank. Mm-hmm. And so the, British politics yeah. has been littered with those. So we've talked about that, didn't we, in our episode on how prime ministers fall. And you drew analogies with Disraeli. with Yeah, Disraeli, Lloyd George, Blair to some extent. Palmerston. Um, ha- Harold Macmillan was the kind of actor manager. I mean, Palmerston, in that unheard piece that you mentioned, I quoted Karl Marx about Palmerston. So Karl Marx said of Palmerston, if not a good statesman of all work, not he's a very at least good a good accent, Dominic. I'm not doing your <laughs> terrible Marx accent because I mean, go on. I mean, people will just have to imagine that in your in your hair flick, <laughs> in your hair flick. Well, your Cluzo. I thought that was very Cluzo. Your Karl Marx. So Karl Marx said, in my voice, if not a good statesman of all work, he's at least a good actor of all work. He succeeds in the comic as in the heroic. He's not a first-class orator, but an accomplished debater. Um, and it goes on, being an exceedingly happy joker, he ingratiates himself with everybody. Never losing his temper, he imposes on an impassioned antagonist. When unable to master a subject, he knows how to play with it. If wanting in general views, he's always ready to weave a web of elegant generalities. And this sort of persona for Palmerston worked very well because there's a lovely story about him going with a speaker of the House of Commons to the Great Exhibition in 1851. And the speaker says, as we walked along, I could gauge the popularity of Lord Palmerston. The moment he came in sight throughout the whole building, men and women, young and old, at once were struck as if by an electric shock. Lord Palmerston, here's Lord Palmerston. Bravo, hurrah, Lord Palmerston forever. And so it went on throughout the whole building. But that's like Johnson at the Olympics. That is Johnson at the Olympics. That's precisely the point. He was an entertainer. He was a, a showman, as Palmerston was, as Disraeli was, as Lloyd George was. But all of the, those three men all had other parts that they played. So Palmerston, you know, the, he, he's not just the sort of the showman at home. He's also the, the imperialist abroad. Um, Disraeli is also a reformer. He's also the romantic novelist. He's also all these other things. Lloyd George, 
He's a he's an absolute philanderer and disgraceful man, but he's also a passionate reformer. He's also a brilliant committee chairman who, you know, he's he combines the Michael Gove and the Boris Johnson, if you like. He can do all the nuts and bolts. And that's true of, I mean, Tony Blair could play different parts. Margaret Thatcher could in America. I mean, Reagan could play different parts, obviously, and he had done all his life. Roosevelt could. I think Boris, if he was an actor with a casting agency, there's only one part he can play. He can't do anything else. And I think that's where he was found out. Well, that and that was the whole problem with COVID because he yeah. couldn't, he couldn't stand there. And, you know, he'd say, I, you know, my thoughts are with everyone who's, you know, suffering and everything. But he just couldn't make it sound plausible. Sounded yes, like he was going right. to go off and have a, a kind of, even, even though he himself had very, you know, almost died of it. Even yeah. after that, he couldn't really. Yeah, it's interesting how even after that, because that's sort of completely forgotten now, isn't it? That he was... Wasn't he? He, he, he went to hospital, died, and, I think. And he was, you know, he was in trouble with it. But that's disappeared from our national memory because it doesn't, and he doesn't really play on that himself because he hates playing the victim. Um, a different, with a different political persona that might loom larger in yeah. our sort of sense of them. Yeah. Joey, our producer, is sending us a message to say, is he the last prime minister that the general public would most want to have a pint with? I mean, that having the pint thing, they have the same thing in America. They use the same formula when they're talking about politicians and i think it really matters i mean nobody wanted to have a drink with Theresa may did they probably not really with Keir starmer either would you go for a drink with jeremy corbyn no probably not <laughs> but you would go for a, i mean actually i was talking to somebody the other week who knows boris johnson and has known him for a long time and he said to me he was telling me all all everything that was wrong with him you know he went through the whole list of all the failings and all of these kinds of things and then he said he said the weird thing about him is he is obviously a terrible man in all these different ways. But if he came in now and he pulled up a chair at this table, he would be such good company and we would have such a tremendous time and he would be so fun to be with. And that's the sort of the paradox of him. Well, that's what people responded to. People, people clearly sense that. Yeah, I think that, so that's I think why he did one mayor, you know, the mayor and all that. So two questions for you um, before we go. The first is, um, has he inflicted serious damage on the idea of the Mos Maiorum, the idea of the unwritten British constitution being governed by convention, by a, a kind of understanding that politicians of all shapes and sizes will be governed by an accepted morality, an accepted sense of what chaps should do, that kind of thing. Has he, has he inflicted serious damage on that or or has the fact that britain's unwritten constitution has in the long run withstood him kind of you know evacuated him as it were (laughs) voided him um shown that 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 it's still functioning um and the second question is will he be seen as a historically significant prime minister oh that's they're two brilliant questions tom you should ask questions more often. Um, <laughs> um, so the first one, I would probably say, some listeners may disagree with this, but but I think um, I think the conventions are intact. Um, I think he has obviously tested them and he's broken a lot of them. But as you say, the fact that he has been evacuated by the system, it's very telling, isn't it, that um, in the end, of virtually every single senior conservative either came out against him or just stayed silent and refused to support him. And the ones who did support him were the ones who would only ever have got a job from him in the first exactly. place. Exactly. 
I mean, the one. I mean, he was he was left at this point. I mean, if Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg listeners to this podcast, I'd be quite surprised. Um, but also, you know, I think it's nice to be inclusive to our listeners. So I apologise to them for what I'm about to say. But I mean, if the two these two utter clowns are the only people <laughs> that you have left supporting you, and everybody else on on every wing of the party, so from Steve Baker on the kind of libertarian right to Jeremy Hunt on the kind of Remainer left of the Tory Party. People of such diverse views are coming out against you and saying you've broken the conventions, you have to go, then clearly something is wrong. And I think actually it's hard to uh, – the fact that he's been punished, as it were, so publicly, humiliated actually, yeah. Tom. He's been humiliated for breaking the conventions, for lying, for you – know, he's sending out ministers to say things that were – and he's clearly infuriated them. Somebody the, – the, I was having my hair cut today and the barber and I were chatting about you know, he sort of said, "Well, politicians—they're all the same, aren't they? They all—they're all liars and all this sort of thing," which is, of course, what people always say. But actually, in some ways, the, the, what's happened in the last few days shows whatever you think of politicians—they're not what what they think of themselves. They—I mean, they've a lot of them have talked. Those Tories, like Javid, have talked about their integrity. Now, you may well think, or the listeners may think, "Oh, they've got no integrity anyway," but they clearly think they do, and that you know, the prime minister has has traduced that or has tarnished it so i think actually the conventions they still a lot most of them the vast majority still clearly believe in those conventions so i don't think it's analogous to what happened in the 6th of january 2021 in america um no well that's where absolutely not i mean i mean right you know people are sort of have always made this comparison between donald trump and boris johnson that i actually never ever thought was right because I thought they're such totally different political personalities. I mean, they both got blonde hair and they're both populist. And as yeah, you said fine. about um, the abortion debate, Britain is not America. Yeah, not everything not has America. to be seen through an American prism. And and this and this is not really this is, like no. The, this the is this has been a this has been about the testing of the limits of the Constitution. I would I would also make a, what what I'm sure many listeners will regard as a, a kind of insane perspective. But I I I actually think that. Every country at the moment is massively hurting. The mm. after effects of COVID and the impact of uh, energy price rises means that every country is going through a, t a terrible stage. And I think that it's kind of right and proper that, that leaders who don't measure up to the, the gravity of the times, you know, go and someone else be brought in. And I think yeah. in that sense, actually... The British Constitution is kind of showing that it works. Well, I mean, it's working the, even in the most very basic sense. He's lost the confidence of the House of Commons. He's got to go. It's as simple as that. But I agree with you. A different prime minister. What would also be good, I think, um, there's been a lot of heat in British politics in the last, what, seven years, six, seven years. I think it, um, a slightly lower temperature would, would be, be nice. Would, would be good for Britain. But again, I mean, in, in reaction to that, um, yeah. again... You know, Britain has been going through a, a unprecedentedly tumultuous time, um, and the perspective from abroad is, you know, what what on earth is going wrong? Everything seems to be going yeah. wrong. You, but you again, you could say that this reflects quite well on British democracy, because actually every country should be going through a terrible time. Every country is facing incredible stresses and strains, and challenges, and kind of existential questions. Uh, and in a sense, the fact that that um, you know we've had so many elections so many weird 
referendums or i mean all kinds of mad shit happening left right and center i mean it yeah. should be ha- mad shit should be happening because we're living through the age of mad shit tom this is um this is top punditry but actually i yeah, completely thanks. agree with you <laughs> i completely agree with you i think um a rambustious colorful chaotic democracy is better um as long as the te- as long as the sort of you know, as long as the temperature doesn't rise too much. Yeah, as long as it doesn't um, go to the full 1640s. We don't want that. Right, exactly. But a rumbustious democracy in which crazy things happen um, is, is not a bad thing. And I think the contrast that people classically make is they say, look at Britain with these sort of terrible clowns and these ludicrous developments and look at Germany with such wonderful stability and all of these kinds of things. Um, and, of course, it's very tempting for us in Britain to look, at, to look across the the channel at germany and to say oh isn't this admirable and stuff on the other hand you look i mean angela merkel who we did a whole podcast about angela merkel and german chancellors and her legacy i mean that looks pretty dodgy now that period of kind of complacent stagnation if you like yeah um ending with the nord stream deal with russia and this sort of virtual appeasement of vladimir putin now the new guy who looks like he's a, a bank manager from a small town of wiltshire no offense tom Nothing, um, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, who's, again, got a what looks like a pretty dodgy record. Uh, you could argue on Russia, you could argue that actually a bit of rumbustious democracy that more countries could do with it. And in a way, the fact that it is farcical and chaotic and, and whatnot, I don't think that's necessarily it's regency, a terrible it? thing. That's what, that's what it is. It's yeah. I, I mean, Johnson is a he's a kind of Prince Regent figure. People in the 18th century, Tom, would look at what was happening now and they'd say, "This is absolutely standard. Yeah, you know, this is completely fine." Now, as to Boris Johnson's place in history, he's going to go down as quite a short-lived prime minister. So same, he's down same time there, as Chamberlain, I think. To the yeah, day. He's, he's down there right now with Chamberlain, and I think it's quite possible. And wouldn't this be the most sort of delicious irony? that he may not match Theresa May's um, time in office, which would be very amusing. So will he be remembered? I think he definitely will be remembered because he's a character. And British, most prime ministers, we've talked about this so many times, most prime ministers are completely and utterly forgotten. So who remembers the Earl of Derby? Who remembers Sir Alec Douglas Hume? Nobody. Frankly, who under the age of 40 remembers Harold Wilson? Or, or James Callaghan. Or James, well, who does remember James? Who remembers Stanley Baldwin, Tom? It pains me to say it, but nobody does. <laughs> if you ask 20 people in the street who was Stanley Baldwin, they'd say, Did he play for Bolton Wanderers in, nine, in the early 1950s? Yeah, he does have that sound. I mean, um, you know, I think very few Thatcher is remembered, Churchill is remembered. Maybe Blair will be remembered. Cameron, no. May, no. Boris Johnson. I, agree. I think Boris Johnson will be remembered as a character. He'll be remembered for Brexit. For Brexit. And he'll also possibly be remembered for the chaotic nature of his departure. But other than that... And he may be remembered for being the Prime Minister during COVID, if COVID is remembered. But will COVID be remembered? I I mean, how many people remembered the Spanish flu before COVID struck? I think it depends what the the long-term legacy of COVID is, which I think is too early to tell. But I mean, will our grandchildren care about COVID? I mean, if if the long term legacy is that, well, if they're looking we back and studying, through... you know, what what are the causes of the Third World War? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I think um, the truth of the matter is, our, let's imagine our grandchildren doing British history in the early twenty first century at school, and the sort of weariness with which they will plod through the essay questions on the Cameron years and austerity and stuff, 
or Theresa May and, and the details of her various Brexit deals. And then they'll turn the page and there'll be a picture of Boris Johnson dang, Cake. Un, <laughs> un, unquestionably dangling from that yeah. zip wire with his Union Jack flags. And they will breathe a colossal sigh of relief, much as you would if you were about to study Charles James Fox. And you'd say, great, finally a good character. This is going to be a laugh. Yeah. And you do a week on Boris Johnson and it probably would be quite disobliging to him. Um, but it would be fun. Now, he probably didn't want, I think deep down, he didn't want to go down in history as, as a, a joker. No. He wanted to go down as a great man, didn't he? Yeah. And, but that's, and he's, but I, that's, that's Fortuna's joke. It is Fortuna's joke. <laughs> um, so um, we should end with a prediction. So who do you think, I'm going to put you on the spot, who do you think will be prime minister at the end of this calendar year? Oh, I thought you were going to say at the end of this week, in which case I no. would have said Dominic Raab, who is the Deputy Dominic Prime Raab, Minister, yeah. and who I think will snap I, up. Yeah. Uh, that's, a fair, that's a fair prediction. But who do you think will be Prime Minister at the end of the year? Uh, I'm, I'm no pundit, Dominic. I know you're not, but I'm putting you on the spot. Um, I think uh, Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak. I don't think it'll be Rishi Sunak. I think he's behaved with a degree of dignity. He's too, he's very, very small. Doesn't matter. He's too he short. He can wear platform think, heels, like Sarkozy. He look. He looks like head boy. At, well, at he, was head boy. he was the head boy. He was the I head boy. He was the head boy Winchester. But he looks. Yeah. But he's. He looks like he's. You know, he's in his smart school uniform. Jeremy Hunt was also head boy. He was head boy at Charterhouse. Was he? Um, you would expect me to have an, uh, a slightly obsessive knowledge of which schools all these people went to. And, and I I think, did we mention this before uh, that Jeremy Hunt has a a ballroom? Yeah, we did. A spring. Yeah, a sprung ballroom. About springs. A yeah. sprung ballroom. I, I mean, you know, there's a case for saying that our first prime minister, who owns his own ballroom. Well, no, they all. I'm sure they all own their own ballrooms back in the 18th century. He mistook his wife for... <laughs> he, he mistook her for a Japanese yes. woman. Yeah. Didn't he go to China and he said, I'm delighted to be here because my wife is Japanese. Oh, I mean, Chinese. Sorry. No, I think the other Sorry. way around, wasn't it? He went to Japan. Was it the other way around? He said, I my wife's remember. Japanese. No, she's not. She's, I can't remember. Yes, but there was. A... Anyway, it was a it was a very entertaining moment. So my prediction is um, Ben Wallace. I think it might be. Uh, I've got a dark horse up my sleeve. Um, I think it might be Penny Mordaunt. Do you? Well, she's 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 a she's she's a kind of Boris esque figure, though, isn't she? She's a kind of jolly carry on. She took part in a diving competition, a reality show. She did a reality, yes. when she was an MP. Yes. You see, I don't think it will be Penny Mordaunt because I think she's too Boris like. And I think the rhythm of British politics is that it's roundhead cavalier, cav- roundhead cavalier. So who's the who's the real roundhead? You, who did you say? Sunex. Sunex. He's got too much money. He's too rich. Uh, so a real roundhead. There's a guy. There's Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. I think he, his his sort of calling card is basically Ukraine. He's very boring. Yeah, and he's very boring. <laughs> he's a bit. Bo- he's sort of a military man who talks like this. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Theresa May's still available. I'm just, <laughs> just. <laughs> I once wrote a column proclaiming that Theresa May was going to leave her stamp on British politics for a decade. Did you? And I could still be right. <laughs> Have that taken down. Um, well, another dark horse for who might be prominent at the end of the year, of course, is Keir Starmer. 
or whoever succeeds him when he resigns, which which will be massive bans. What would he resign for again? Did he have a Coke or something? He had a curry. He had, he had a, a curry. He had a curry, he had he had a curry, a curry or something. He had a curry and a beer. Yeah. As somebody said to me, Keir Starmer's only ever had one beer in his life. And <laughs> the irony, I mean, that really is Fortuna's curse. If, if um, that one beer is the beer that so brings maybe, him down. So maybe Wes Streeting, uh, who is the Blairite candidate to succeed Keir Starmer. I, d- I don't know. I keep you talking long enough. The Blairism comes out, Tom. I think, I think and of course, Tony. Tony's still oh, Tony hankers yes. after her. Yes. <laughs> you, yes. Prince Edward, House and Bla- Tony. House Blair. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe maybe Prince Edward. Maybe Prince Edward. <laughs> on, on that on that bombshell, uh, I think we should draw this rambling. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's been rambling at all. I think it's been. Do you think it's been I, rambling? I it's we been had an absolute a- display of top punditry. At first class punishing the Pittsburgh Post Gazette will be <laughs> all over it. Do you know what? But, but Dominic, you know what's terrifying is that that this will still be up in a year's time. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> like your like your article predicting that Theresa May will well, dominate British I, politics for a I, decade. I, I think yes, well, there's that. <laughs> but what's also still up is our opening, our very opening podcast, Tom, about greatness. Yes. Well, the last. Historical greatness, where the last five minutes are all about Vladimir Putin. Well, and we I, haven't taken that down. No, because I think that was a very shrewd analysis. Because he, he he is trying to be Peter the Great. Yeah, he is. Well, he's he's completely open about it now, isn't he? I'm not in any yeah. way apologising. I think that was excellent. I think we were on, right. on, absolutely on the money. Well, with that. on that self congratulatory <laughs> note. <laughs> um, so we have got all kinds of treats lined up. Uh, we've got a whole series of a week of podcasts all about the history of London. Um, we have George Orwell. We have the long-awaited episode on um, the history of pigeons and their contribution to world civilization. And on Monday, Dominic, what do we have? I don't. I can't remember actually. We have we Love have? Island. Oh, we have Love Island. Well, everybody will be will want cheering up after the events of this week, and to find out which of our. Do you want to describe them, Tom? Um, using your your time yeah. honored phrase, historical hunks and babes. To find out which of the hunks and babes will be what will they be doing well so there will be four couples at the end of the show and they will be going up for public vote so you can decide who wins historical love island 2022 it couldn't be more exciting coming on monday do not miss it that dream couple of judas iscariot and virginia (laughs) wolf emerge triumphant wait and see it couldn't be it couldn't be more exciting it's much more exciting than politics right goodbye everybody bye-bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. 
If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.